Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, author Tim Sandifer details how rights have become privileges in the U.S. Adam Bates evaluates how best to de-escalate confrontations with American police. Charles Murray makes his case for a universal basic income. And Alex Narasta evaluates the risk of being killed in a terrorist attack. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this, we are just now a few days after election 2016 and one of the most surprising uh, results in the presidential election in a very long time, uh, where Donald Trump has been elected uh, president of the United States. And uh, to talk about that and sort of some of the implications of the election and how we uh, how this election was so surprising. I'm talking to John Samples, vice president and publisher of the Cato Institute. And for the purposes of this conversation, he is the author of The Struggle to Limit Government, A Modern Political History. Also speaking with David Bowes, executive vice president here at the Cato Institute, author of The Libertarian Mind. So to begin here, this was a result that seemed to solidify well, around midnight uh, or a little after in, uh, the, in the United States as um, uh, most people had gone to sleep, at least in Washington, D.C. So everybody seemed to have gotten this result wrong. Well, certainly uh, in the run-up to the election day, it seemed like everyone from pollsters to the Dow Jones Industrial Average had decided that uh, the Trump threat to the global economy, or whatever you want to call it, was passing, that he would lose and that uh, the status quo, in a way, would win. Uh, and in that regard, uh, yeah, and it comes as a great surprise. David Bowes, uh, Trevor Thrall, in one of my recent conversations with him, described Hillary Clinton as the least possible uh, appetizing incarnation of the status quo. <laughs> well, that's probably true. She is not the natural, charming campaigner that Bill Clinton was and is. Um, she doesn't seem to have the same speaking style, dignity, grace that Barack Obama does. Um, she's not as friendly and natural as George W. Bush was. And so what does that leave you with? A very hardworking wonk um, who doesn't have a lot of uh, popular touch or uh, oratorical ability. And in, in terms of this election, it's very difficult for one party to win three presidential elections in a row. That was the best argument that there would be a change. You might note it's also difficult for one family to win three elections, and, and she was going for both of those things. So we may all in Washington have underestimated the power of those things and the, the demand for change that was out there in the country. Yeah, I, w I would add to that from the political science perspective. Uh, we tend to look at things as uh, these kinds of elections as status quo, yes or no. Do you want to continue things? Do you want to change? And so that tends to abstract from many people from the personality questions, the campaign questions, all that kind of thing. And even from these two disliked candidates, I think. I think a lot of things that were said about uh, both of them, including Mr. Trump, some people don't understand why those things were ignored about the things he said and so on. But there was a larger abstract question, status quo or not. And in fact, she was a very strong 
personification of the status quo, both good and bad, I think. And uh, as we turn to sort of try to get a grip on what we think might be in store for a Trump administration. Um, I spoke with uh, Anthony Comegna here at Cato, who is the uh, assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. And one of the things that that he uh, talks about is essentially that the biggest concern that he has is that uh, a Trump administration would be uh, moderate, which is to say, the imperialism, the globe-trotting, the spending, uh, and the uh, assaults on the surveillance, the assaults on civil liberties would simply continue slowly, apace, and that might actually be a bigger problem. That's certainly possible. That might be your, uh, if you were a betting person, that might be your, you know, the sort of most frequent bet, because that would be most likely to be true, because the system itself is sprawling, it's uh, fragmented, and you have at the top a person who will not win the popular vote probably, and he has doesn't have a lot of experience running either a state government or the federal government. He has a lot of experience running a business and dealing with politicians, but bringing change is hard uh, for anyone, and he doesn't have, say, something like Lyndon Johnson's 64 or Ronald Reagan's 84. Uh, margins. So I would say bet on the status quo, whether you think it's a good thing or not. He has the least apparent knowledge of and interest in public policy of any elected president. The things that he talked the most about, uh, trade and immigration, libertarians uh, are not very keen about. Uh, the big potential departure from the status quo, it seems to me, is whether his personal sense of honor and dignity and revenge on his enemies will become a hallmark of his White House. That, I think, is what a lot of people have been emailing me and Facebooking about, is the idea that he will carry this ego into the White House where he has this tremendous power. Will they use the White House to punish his enemies as he kept tweeting during the campaign that he would. So uh, in comparing Donald Trump as before he enters office, the two things that I, based on his acceptance speech uh, or his, uh, his victory speech uh, on Tuesday night, the things that stuck with me were, uh, we got to dream big. And we've got to have big ambitions. And the two names that stuck out, uh, stuck with me were James K. Polk and Franklin Roosevelt, as, as people who had it seemed, it seemed to be very specific ideas about what they wanted to do, mm -hmm. uh, no matter how uh, destructive they might have been to uh, groups that stood in the way. Well, he wasn't very specific about a lot of things. He, you got, you know, we could guess about uh, areas, and as David mentioned, in those areas where probably uh, the Cato Institute and the people who work here aren't going to be very happy about it. Um, I think also we have to consider at least a plausible um, uh, kind of theory, which is that people who knew him report that this what you've seen in this campaign is they, they kind of have a hard time recognizing that except some of the issues about attention span and so on. So maybe uh, a lot of what we heard was in fact just campaign rhetoric and it was something he thought to he needed to exploit a uh, advantage that appeared pretty quickly in the primaries and he carried him all the way to the White House now. 
So it's at least imaginable that we will see a person who adopts a persona that will try to be as successful as possible as president. And then keep in mind, he may well want to run again. And that would mean a person that's going to be looking at Michigan, Ohio, Ohio, uh, excuse me, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the states that he flipped. He's going to be uh, looking at those and what he needs to do to keep them. My Republican friends are assuring me that he's a Republican president and we have a Republican Congress and he's going to sit there and sign Paul Ryan's agenda, tax reform, entitlement restraint, um, deregulation, uh, repeal Obamacare. That's the optimistic way of looking at it, that there will be deregulation and, and restraint in government. There are uh, Obama and his administration did a lot by executive order and, and departmental regulation, and those things can be rolled back quickly if the president and the departments are of a mind to. Uh, these other things, the Republicans have passed uh, repeal Obamacare many times. Uh, now the voters have called their bluff. There is a president who we believe will sign that bill. Pass it again. Of course, the other thing that was mentioned in passing by David is there's uh, executive. Nothing's better for taking out and taking revenge on your enemies or people you perceive as your enemies than executive discretion. And I think maybe now many people, uh, some of whom thought uh, mandatory disclosure of political activity was a great idea, might be wondering whether that was the smartest thing overall. Because now we know exactly who contributed exactly what during the previous election. I'm not saying that Mr. Trump would do that, but there is at least that possibility. Let's talk about sort of the practicalities here. We're, we're speaking, of course, the week, the same week as the election and already names are being thrown around for various positions in government. But when you are, uh, by all accounts, a political outsider, Donald Trump had a difficult time even attracting uh, a group of advisors that people in Washington, or I should say, uh, the establishment in Washington would consider to be uh, credible. But staffing an administration is a difficult task without reaching into that sort of standard pool of technocrats that uh, hang around here all the time anyway. Well, yes, although a lot of the names being tossed around, like Rudy Giuliani and Sheriff David Clark, are not the established Washington names. Uh, the list that Politico ran of potential cabinet members looked to me like a right-wing activist's beer-fueled fantasy. And if, if it turns out that people like that get nominated, then um, that will be a much more ideologically right-wing administration than I expect this to be. Um, I suspect that's a first draft of names of people who are close to him and that we will see a more diverse group. But will it be diverse in the way of going out and bringing in people from around the country who have different kinds of expertise, or will it only be diverse in terms of people who supported Trump and people who are part of the Washington establishment? And I wonder also uh, how, to what extent he's going to bring his business experience. You know, I mean, when you're building a building, you're building a casino or something, it, it, people have talked about this. Many, you actually have to meet deadlines. There's a kind of structure to it. And he surely has worked within that. Now, people have said that he's hired very good people for that. And, 
and many of them were women to, to manage his uh, construction trade. But if that set of surely he has to be connected to that, those kinds of deadlines and schedules in some ways, and he might expect it from government to some extent, and to some extent he might look to expertise and people that can get things done. Uh, for that reason. The parallels between business and government are very limited, though. I mean, for one thing, business is a win-win situation. You're trying to make deals with people that will make you both better off. Um, government is kind of inherently a zero-sum game at best. I take money from you, and I give it to him, and then I get his votes. Um, the same rules don't apply. I saw Newt Gingrich, who ought to understand how government works, say, this man has built hotels, he's built golf courses, of course he knows how to secure our southern border. That is ludicrously off-target. There's no comparison between building a golf course and knowing how to build an impermeable wall between people. I also wonder, uh, uh, this morning David and I were talking, I, I recalled uh, Tip O'Neill and R Ronald Reagan. Uh, Tip O'Neill uh, really peeved Reagan at one point, and, and one time in a face-to-face, -face, Reagan blew up at him. But Reagan didn't break off negotiations. He continued at it, and he was able to do a deal with him to the extent that he needed to and to work with him. So here I wonder about uh, President-elect Trump, whether his uh, famous thin-skinned approach to things, that if people say things during these uh, battles, he'll uh, be able to overlook it and continue the bargaining process. I don't know. I, I want to talk about some of the, the policy prescriptions that he actually has offered. Uh, build a giant wall along the southern border, uh, ban uh, Muslim immigration for a time to the United States until we, quote unquote, figure out what's going on and, um, you know, not sign trade deals, tax uh, products that are coming in from uh, other countries, particularly products of companies that have decided to take their production to another uh, country. It, it seems like if, you're, if you care about the economy and if you uh, follow, tr understand trade and uh, those kinds of relationships, these things seem to be destined to fail. And with such a narrow margin that uh, Trump had in this election that the people who grudgingly voted for him would be the first to say, well, I don't, I don't care for this guy anymore. He seemed passionately committed to the trade and immigration positions, which virtually all economists would disagree with, uh, which will not work. Um, when he becomes president, he will realize that running for re-election or not, he'll be judged on the, the soundness of the economy. He can't bring back the steel jobs to Ohio. He can't bring back the textile jobs to North Carolina. So he should think about what might work. Some tax reduction might work. Some uh, deregulation might work. Um, but he will be told by everyone who knows what they're talking about that these protectionist measures will weaken the world economy and weaken the U.S. economy, and that will not be good for a president's approval ratings. So maybe he will, for instance, get distracted and drop this. President Obama campaigned on opening up NAFTA, and then he didn't, uh, because he wasn't stupid and he, he knew that would be a bad idea. Um, Maybe he will fly to Tokyo 
have a celebrated meeting with uh, uh, prime ministers in Asia, change a comma in the trade, uh, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and come back announcing he's renegotiated TPP and now it's a good deal for America. That would be the optimistic way of looking at it. Make a tiny change and then say, I fixed it. To change election and many of these things that uh, he talked about were, you could say, well, I wonder if we had really strong economic growth of the normal sort over the last eight years. Would those things be put quite in the way they are, being against trade and so on? And uh, I think the answer is probably not. This has—one uh, thing we haven't mentioned is it is true that the Obama eight years have been a very strange time in America. There has been growth and unemployment's come down, but it hasn't—we're uh, off the, the trend in terms of growth in, in the United States. And that's—I think that's a big part of this story. So maybe Mr. Trump might see that in by 2020, what he wants is to get back on there and that 4% growth, say, would um, make a big difference in his re-election prospects. And uh, the way to do that is through a liberalization, because we there are credible people, including many that work for Cato, that thinks those kinds of numbers uh, with some attention to the supply side, are really possible. We should mention uh, the libertarian candidates for president. Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld uh, were pushing 15 percent in uh, numerous states as they uh, sought inclusion in the debates. They did not get into the debates and ultimately did not seem to have made a big impact uh, on the election, although uh, some You could argue if, if those people have voted a different way that it would have made a very large impact on the election. But, of course, uh, tens of millions of people decided not to vote and that, that made a much bigger impact. So uh, what can we say about that effort and third parties more generally? And I guess the, the structure of the institutional structure really of how campaigns move from one stage to another. I think that this was the best qualified, most experienced third-party ticket I can remember. Two two-term governors teamed up to run uh, for president and vice president. And that caused people to get very excited and talk about getting 15 percent. And then if you're in the debate, what could change if people finally got an opportunity to hear that there's an alternative? But they didn't get 15 percent in the polls and they didn't get into the debates. And then they were shooting for 5 percent to make them sort of an official political party eligible for government funding. And they didn't get that. They got about three and a quarter percent, four million votes. That's more than three times as well as any Libertarian Party presidential candidate has done in the past. It's better than Ralph Nader. It's better than any third-party candidate since the billionaire celebrity uh, Ross Perot. But you had two governors running against the two most unpopular candidates in polling history. If you can't do better than 3 percent in that race, when can you? And what does that tell you about the viability of third-party politics? Yeah, I would add only to that that what does it tell you about the strengths of the two-party system and how the, those strengths and that system vitiate uh, third—even what we must say is a very strong third—we should have been a very strong effort. It's uh, The two-party system is something that we should—you know, I mean, merits— 
uh, a strong look, but you can look at it and criticize it and everything. It seems so deeply rooted in America. Uh, John, in Maine, they passed instant runoff voting. Mm. Would that strengthen third parties? David and I have talked about this many times over the years. And, you know, David, I was really skeptical for a long time. And in the last year or so, I've started to think maybe this is something that's a good idea. Maybe, you know, the freeing people to the point where they don't uh, have to feel like they're wasting their votes and, and where they feel like that. And then you have an explicit notion of how strong points of view or candidates are before as well as after the election. I think there's a lot to be said for it. And proportional representation is looking uh, pretty good for the liberal libertarian cause. Uh, in my perspective, I've just found it very frustrating that the two parties are offering up such limited options, particularly at the top of the ticket and the top of the government. In this election, of course, it might have helped Jill Stein at least as much, maybe more, because I think we're not quite mm. sure where the Johnson votes would have gone. Some to Hillary, some to Trump, some would have stayed home, I think. Mm. The Jill Stein votes presumably would have mostly gone to Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee. So if there'd been an option to cast your vote for the Green Party, mm. but then to say, if she isn't one of the top finishers, then I want my vote to go to Hillary Clinton, I could see the Greens getting 10, 15 percent, the whole Bernie vote, voting for Jill Stein, but then listening Hillary as their second choice. Correct. Yeah, that's a certainly a possibility. Uh, but of course, uh, the Johnson voters would have had an option. And the other thing is something like that would go back through the entire system. So you might see candidates that are actually uh, stronger and, uh, and can get into the system in an earlier stage. It's hard to say. And, I, and the problem is the two-party system is deeply rooted in uh, American politics. And I think we're going to have a hard time beyond with you know, Maine or Berkeley uh, getting beyond uh, what we have now, the two-party, first-past-the-post, single-member district system. At the state level, uh, you know, it's easy to forget about these kinds of things uh, when we're talking about such a divisive and uh, polarizing presidential election. But uh, on referenda, the pe people voting on things at the ballots, is there anything notable at the state level? Well, uh, I think the uh, defeat of the carbon tax initiative in Washington was uh, expected, but was notable. That was uh, uh, something that might have been expected in a state like Washington to pass. In Colorado, you had single-payer health care was failed at the uh, ballot, uh, failed on the ballot. So that's um, pretty notable things, and I think uh, something that uh, was striking from a libertarian point of view. Uh, there may have also been bad things that happened from our point of view, I think. Well, that's right. There were some gun control initiatives that passed. Uh, Californians voted to ban plastic bags. Um, most tax referendums failed, except if they were explicitly directed at a very narrow segment of the rich. It turns out you can get a majority of people to vote to tax other people as long as they're confident it won't come out of their pockets. But from my point of view, the really interesting thing about referenda is marijuana liberalization was on the ballot in nine states. It appears that in four states, medical marijuana passed. And in four out of five states, marijuana use for adults passed. And one of those states is California, which obviously is very big. And 
That means, I think, there's real momentum going forward, and I expect in 2018 a lot of other states that have referendums will pass this. It's kind of like what happened in 2012 with gay marriage. There had been a lot of gay marriage initiatives to ban gay marriage that had passed. Then there was some change in public opinion, and in 2012, four states voted in favor of marriage equality and a string of Supreme Court decisions followed after that. I'm not expecting a Supreme Court decision striking down marijuana prohibition, but this does suggest that there's a lot of sentiment out there. Um, marijuana legalization is more popular than either Trump or Clinton, and politicians ought to take note of that. Well, it's also there's an institutional aspect to this, too. This is uh, it's, the reform might well be slower than a lot of people would like, but it's a bottom up reform that's moving slowly throughout the country. And once it is done and it does look like there's one direction for this, it will stick. Right. And I think that's also true uh, about gay marriage. I mean, I've heard from some people who were worried about the incoming administration on issues like that. But they fail to notice that the president is concerned about popularity and popular issues and that gay marriage is a majority uh, uh, view. That uh, So he would have to turn against his own character in a way, his concern about popularity, and against a uh, majority of the American people to move on issues like that. And he never made it an issue. He did not. All right, well, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. John Samples, vice president and publisher at the Cato Institute, and David Bowes, executive vice president at the Cato Institute. Uh, not to toot my own horn, but please uh, check out the Cato Daily podcast for uh, updates on a more regular basis on events relating to this transition to the new White House and the Trump administration. And, of course, find our continuing commentary at Cato.org. The American Revolution inaugurated a new vision for government. People have basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and government must ask permission from them. Today, in many ways, the reverse is true. The Permission Society, the new book by Tim Sandifer, details the sad manner in which rights have become privileges. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. We philosophize a lot about what is freedom. Is a, is a poor person who is too poor to afford things really free? That sort of argument. But I think those are distractions from what freedom really is. And that is, freedom means not having to ask permission. John Locke says, freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do as he lists. For who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But instead, a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but to freely follow his own. Not to have to ask permission from someone before using your property or whatever, subject to the same laws that apply to everyone else. Now, this was a revolutionary idea in the 1770s because the, pri the, the older model of freedom was this Magna Carta principle that we, we tend to call this principle in the law prior restraint. Prior restraint was the old rule when it came to freedom of press. We, that's where we normally hear this term is when we're talking about freedom of press. Prior restraint was the rule that said you had to get the government's permission before you could publish something. 
And in the 17th century, this was overturned, and it became the pride of British subjects that no prior restraint could be placed on a person before that person published his sentiments or gave a speech or something like that. He might be punished afterwards if he committed slander or threats or something like that, but he couldn't be required to ask permission before uttering his views. But the same principle applies across the board. Religion, in particular, is the model that I use in the book. Under the British system, the British, like if you read William Blackstone in his commentaries in the 1760s, Blackstone is very proud that British subjects enjoyed more religious toleration than the people of any other nation. He's very proud of this, and rightly so, because he's right. He says in the commentaries why we even let Catholics own property, which was pretty liberal by the standards of that day, right? But the principle behind the British system was toleration. Once again, the king was tolerating religious differences, giving religious liberty to the, not liberty, but toleration to the people. The founders repudiated this concept. Thomas Paine says, toleration is not the opposite of intoleration, but is the counterfeit of it. Both are despotisms. The one assumes to itself the right of withholding the liberty of conscience and the other of granting it. One is the pope armed with fire and stake. The other is the pope selling or granting indulgences. Jefferson says the same thing in Notes on Virginia when he's talking about his proposal for the, what became the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. He says, our rulers can only have such authority over us as we have submitted to them. The rights of conscience we have never submitted. We are answerable for them to God. The legitimate powers of government extend only to such acts as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there is no God or 20 gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Probably my favorite Jefferson quote. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, so it's none of the government's business. Madison, in his old age, James Madison was very proud, and he wrote a little memoir where he, he told this story that when he was young, in his 20s, he served on the committee that drafted the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And the primary figure on the committee was George Mason, the respected elder statesman of Virginia politics. And Mason, in his original draft, wrote that all people would enjoy the total toleration of religion. And Madison, this then basically unknown young upstart, and this, this intern, jumps up and says, no, no, you can't use the word toleration. You must use the word liberty. And he persuaded Mason to replace the word. He was very proud of that. What the founders did here and elsewhere was to embrace the presumption that we are all basically free, not that we are basically unfree until the government gives it to us. And that's reflected in the text of the Constitution, which speaks of securing the blessings of liberty, that says that our rights shall not be abridged, that says no, no law respecting the freedom of speech or whatever shall be passed. The right of the people to do so and so shall not be infringed. And of course, the Ninth Amendment, which makes clear that the list of rights is not exclusive, just because it's not listed in the rights, just because the Constitution doesn't say you have the right to run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day doesn't mean that you don't have that right. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. It says government is not giving you freedom. It is simply listing a few of your freedoms in the Bill of Rights. So how have we come, how have we come to the point where today you basically need to get government's permission for a, a wide variety of the things that you spend your daily life doing? Think of the things that you have to ask government permission 
to do. You need a permit to build a house, own a gun, get a job, buy things sometimes, run businesses, pay your, your, your employees. Even freedom of speech now often comes with some sort of permit requirement. We have these colleges and, and uh, uh, political conventions setting up free speech zones, which are basically cages where you're allowed to express your opinion inside the cage. As, as the popular saying has it, I always thought America was a free speech zone. But this is, it's also a subtle sort of thing. You find it in places where you wouldn't expect it. An example that I use in the book is architectural design review. Architectural design review occurs when an architect come, has planned out maybe a, a, a single building or a, a subdivision, and he goes before the city zoning board, and the city zoning board officials look at it, and they say, well, it complies with all of our safety codes, but I just don't like the way it looks. I would really prefer that it be colonial or neo-colonial instead of whatever other style it's designed in, purely for aesthetic reasons. I hold that architecture is a form of sculpture. It's an artistic expression and therefore should be protected by the First Amendment as a form of free speech in exactly the same way that other kinds of sculptures are protected as free speech. No one can walk through a Frank Lloyd Wright building or uh, a building by Le Corbusier, or I'm from Pasadena, a green and green uh, 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 masterpiece like the, the Blacker House in Pasadena without experiencing the aesthetic feelings that great artists seek to convey. It is a form of free speech. Architectural design review substitutes the government's aesthetic preferences for the architect's own. Unfortunately, so far, no architect has been found with the guts to litigate that point. Um, what's happening in these and other areas is that we're replacing the free society with the permission society, a society where you are not free unless the government gives you permission. Now, the model that lawyers use for this that I describe in the book is the difference between the nuisance system and the permit system. The nuisance system is built on the ancient classical legal principle, sic utere something, 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 something. I don't know that. And it, what that means is you have the right to use your property as you want so long as you harm no other person. As opposed to the permit system, which says you are not allowed to do this thing unless the government allows you. Now, there are problems with the nuisance system. One of the problems is that it's, it's basically reactive. It allows people to commit harms, and then you can sue them or, or, or get an injunction against them, more or less, after they've committed the harm or right immediately before they're going to commit the harm. The permit system proposes to be proactive. It says, no, no, you have to prove to us that you are qualified, honest, and so forth before you act. The problem is that there are many more problems with the permit system than with the nuisance system. For example, rent seeking, the phenomenon where if the government can hand out benefits to people, it becomes in their best interest to spend their time and money to get the government to do that in their favor. Another one is the knowledge problem, identified by Friedrich Hayek. No individual, no corporation, no government can possibly know all of the information necessary to run an entire economy. The classic example given by Leonard Reed is the pencil. Nobody in the world knows how to design, how to, how to build a pencil. Because to build a pencil, you need graphite and wood. To get the wood, you have to have lumber. To get the lumber, you have to have lumberjacks. To get lumberjacks, you have to feed them, which means you have to have farms, which means you have to, right? A few steps along this reasoning and the entire world's economy is spent building a single pencil. But the way it works is by a decentralized process of decision-making that avoids this knowledge problem. The permit system 
causes this knowledge problem. So to take an example, in Kentucky, I litigated a case in Kentucky in defense of, a, of a, an entrepreneur who wanted to start a moving company. And in Kentucky, as in most states, you're not allowed to start a moving company until you first get permission from all of the existing moving companies in the state. Not making this up, this is the law in about half the states and in most major metropolitan areas. It's called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity Law. You have to prove to government bureaucrats that there's a need for a new moving company in Kentucky before they'll give you a permit. And any existing moving company can object and say there's no need for more competition against them. And guess what? They often say that, right? So we took, we took this case to court and in the deposition I asked, how do, you, how do you bureaucrats decide whether there's a public need or even worse, a future public need for a moving company some way down the line? And the, the, the bureaucrat answering the question said, there are no objective criteria. Well, there you go. That's another problem with the permit system, is the vagueness of the criteria that usually operate. For instance, in the gun permit area, you can't have a gun unless there's good cause. What does good cause mean? Whatever the bureaucrats say it means. But even deeper than this, I think there's even more fundamental problems with the permit society. One of them is it violates the principle of equality. Who has to ask permission? An inferior has to ask permission of a superior, right? Slaves have to ask permission. Children have to ask permission. Until recently, women had to ask permission to own property, get jobs, sign contracts, and so forth, right? To, to, be an, to have to ask permission from someone else typically means flattering or appeasing that person rather than treating them as equal citizens or even as government employees who stand beneath the citizens in that sense. It substitutes political for economic power. The, the permit system, this rent-seeking phenomenon, creates a class of people who have access to the government decision makers and can use that power to benefit themselves. The Soviet Union called this the nomenklatura system. There was always a class of people you know, whose cousin served on the board or whose brother was on the committee or who, you know, in exchange for a little something might be able to get you some time in front of the bureaucrat. That's another problem with the permit system. It allows those in power to demand something in exchange for a permit. In the land use context, we often see this where you apply for a permit to build something, the government comes back and demands property or even cash from you in exchange for a permit. The Supreme Court has said that this is unconstitutional in many cases, but local land use officials continue to do it nevertheless. I did a case in a San Diego, in the San Diego area several years ago where my client was forced to give up his right to vote in exchange for a building permit. Recent events in Oklahoma and North Carolina continue to draw attention to the combustible relationship between the police and the communities they serve. Despite the national focus, important facts are getting blurred as partisans on both sides square off in an increasingly divisive national debate. Adam Bates, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, discussed how police protect and serve on Capitol Hill in October. We all saw the images in Ferguson of, of the police with gas masks and body armor and assault rifles, in some cases sniper rifles, 
Uh, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of people, especially people in communities like Ferguson, they, they are familiar with this uh, image of American law enforcement. But I think for a lot of people, uh, people like me especially, this, this was a bit of a shock. Uh, you start to think, is this what law enforcement is, looks like in America right now? Uh, so there's a longstanding myth in America that, that SWAT teams and these paramilitary tactics are isolated incidents or that they're reserved uh, for the worst of the worst. And in fairness, that's how SWAT teams started. Uh, SWAT teams were initially designed uh, to be used for hostage situations, <laughs> active shooters, uh, barricaded suspects, things of that nature. Uh, emergencies where routine law enforcement equipment and tactics uh, were not good enough. Uh, but with the uh, advent of the drug war, that, that changed rapidly. A few hundred SWAT raids a year turned into thousands. Uh, the best estimate we have right now is that police across America conduct, how many raids do you think police conduct? Just in your head, how many SWAT raids do you think uh, go on in this country every year? Uh, the best information we have right now is that roughly 80,000 SWAT raids occur uh, in America per year. Uh, and contra contrary to conventional wisdom, again, these are not hostage situations. These are not active shooters. The vast majority of these SWAT raids are serving search warrants. Uh, only 7%, according to the ACLU, only 7% of these raids are those initial purposes, the hostage situation, the active shooter situation. Uh, the vast majority of these are search warrants, and the vast majority of these search warrants are looking for drugs. Just recently, you may have seen in the news, a SWAT team in Massachusetts, reportedly accompanied by a National Guard helicopter, uh, descended on the home of an 81-year-old woman in order to seize a single pot plant that had been spotted uh, from the air. Uh, so, and that woman is fighting with all of her heart, bless her. <laughs> and, so, and, I, so, and people need to understand, these are, not, these are not peaceful law enforcement operations. They've become a bit normalized. Uh, but we're talking about aggressive paramilitary-style raids, and they're dangerous. They're dangerous for the officers involved, and they're dangerous for the people who live in these homes. So we're talking about showing up at your house at 3 in the morning, 3 or 4 in the morning, and in many cases not even knocking on the door to announce themselves, battering ram in the door, throw everybody on the floor, shoot the dog, perhaps. Just a side note, how many dogs do you think the police kill in this country every year? Uh, the Department of Justice, this is shocking, the Department of Justice estimates that police in America kill 10,000 dogs uh, a year during, during these police procedures. Uh, so again, these are high intensity uh, with a high potential for violent escalation and a high potential for violence. So what does this have to do with, with you and your bosses and the federal government? Well, that's another myth, that the federal government does not have much to say about what goes on in, in local police departments. Uh, while criminal justice is historically uh, a state or local practice, uh, the war on drugs and more recently the war on terror have provided the basis for the federal government to become deeply entangled in state and local law enforcement. Uh, and that, that the result of that entanglement is a big distortion of police priorities and police practices. So through huge federal grant programs such as the Urban Areas Security Initiative, through weapons transfer programs directly from the Pentagon transferring weapons and military weapons and military equipment to local police uh, through programs such as the 1033 program that many of you are familiar with uh, and through the aforementioned uh, equitable sharing program that is the federal government uh, creating a legal regime to help facilitate state and local police uh, taking property cash and property from people uh, who are not charged with a crime or not convicted of a crime they're merely suspected uh, usually of a drug crime 
uh, losing their property to the police. Uh, the federal government, through this program, provides incentives for state and local police to engage in this. And so the end result of this is that state and local police, because of the incentive structure, start to forsake local concerns and local priorities uh, in the name of fighting the federal government's wars, the federal government's war on drugs and the federal government's war uh, on terror. Some examples of, of this distortion, uh, police in Keene, New Hampshire, applied for and received federal funding, almost a half million dollars, for a mine-resistant vehicle by arguing that the Keene Pumpkin Festival was a target for terrorists. I'm sure it's a fantastic pumpkin festival. I've not been myself. But I, it, it, it stands to reason that, that the Keene Pumpkin Festival was not actually an Al-Qaeda target. And in fact, a Keene city councilman admitted as much when he said, we're not really concerned about the threat of terrorism, but that's what you have to put on the application if you want the money. Another refreshing bit of candor from the same official said, and by the way, what red-blooded American cop doesn't want to drive around in one of those? That's surely true. It's surely true that police and anyone would like to play around with these toys, but that is not the purpose of law enforcement. That is certainly not the reason, uh, reason that justifies the existence of these federal programs or this federal intervention in state and local police. Another councilman called it a tremendous waste of money, which was also candid. The important thing to remember, because these are federal grant programs, it was not the money of the taxpayers of Keene, New Hampshire. This did not go through the Keene legislature. This did not go through the normal appropriations process. This was money from the federal taxpayers, from the federal government to Keene in order to, to provide this equipment that otherwise uh, they simply wouldn't have because nobody else would be paying for it. Uh, another example, police in Tacoma, Washington, cited the threat of IEDs. Uh, IED stands for Improvised Explosive Device. These are the kind of roadside bombs that you may hear about in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so Tacoma, Washington, cited the threat of IEDs to, uh, for federal funding for another mine-resistant vehicle. Again, there is very little evidence that there has ever been or will be in the near future an IED attack in Tacoma, Washington. But that's what you have to say if you want the equipment. Uh, retired Senator Tom Coburn from my home state of Oklahoma uh, put out a report in 2012 uh, to highlight the, the profligacy of these terrorism grant programs. He specifically targeted the Urban Area Security Initiative, uh, which at the time, this, this study was put out in 2012, had given more than $7 billion to state and local law enforcement through these terrorism grants, and yet, uh, according to the report, uh, there was very little evidence to suggest that the communities were any safer, that this massive expenditure of federal tax dollars and this massive intervention of the federal government into state and local policing was actually producing anything on the back end, except for enriching these departments and producing this militarization effect. Many, if not most, libertarians oppose welfare state policies on principle, but for those who are willing to allow for some welfare, the universal basic income has gained traction. Charles Murray is author of the new book, In Our Hands, A Plan to Replace the Welfare State. In it, he makes his case for the universal basic income, and he spoke at the Cato Institute in October. I'm going to try to give you the libertarian case for universal basic income. I should probably also take the minute to sketch out the specifics of uh, the, the, the system I propose in the book. Essentially, it says that we replace 
the entire welfare state with the universal basic income, and that's how we fund it, too. And be replace everything. I'm not just talking about welfare. I'm talking about all transfer payments, and that includes uh, Social Security. It also includes Medicaid and Medicare and uh, housing subsidies and corporate welfare and agricultural subsidies and all the rest. A transfer payment in which some Americans have money taken from them by the government and it's given to other individuals or groups, all of that goes. In its place is a monthly check deposited electronically to a known <coughs> bank account, an important feature of it. Uh, and this amounts in my plan uh, as updated this year to $10,000 of disposable income there's also $3,000 a year that is used for uh, medical care. Uh, we can get into that, but I think I'm going to put that aside in my opening remarks because let's just talk about the disposable income and assume medical care has been taken care of one way or another. The libertarian case for this can be made on just purely uh, grounds of uh, the lesser of the evils. That's the grounds that uh, Milton Friedman used for his negative income tax proposal. I would put the, this, uh, this part of the case as saying, look, there is no way that an advanced uh, democracy of the West is going to get rid of massive amounts of transfer payments. It's just not going to happen. Uh, a libertarian dream of uh, dismantling the welfare state is not in the cards. Let's strike a grand bargain with the left. And the grand bargain is that we will let you spend an awful lot of money on uh, transfer payments to help the disadvantaged. And uh, your part is that you give up the role of the state in trying to stage manage people's lives. Probably the main reason that I think enacting this would be not just necessary because of a variety of contingencies that are forcing themselves upon us, but a good thing in terms of the way the country functions is I think it has a chance of revitalizing American civil society. First, think of those people who have serious problems. So you have somebody who uh, is on the basic universal income. He gets his check every month, but he drinks it up. So it's 10 days to go to the end of the month. He's out of money. Well, he can't go to the government for help. He has to go to his girlfriend, his parents, his uh, children, his neighbors, the Salvation Army. He has to go somewhere and ask for help. There is, however, a major difference in the way that that person can, will interact with the people he asks for help. He is no longer a helpless victim who can't do anything. And that's what he's going to be told. Yeah, we aren't going to let you starve in the streets, uh, but it's time for you to get your act together. Because we know you've got a check coming in to just 10 days. And, and we, let's start to take steps to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again. One such interaction doesn't make much difference necessarily. Imagine a country in which millions of such interactions are taking uh, place constantly. That's one aspect. Deal because uh, let me just say quickly, dealing with human needs is really tough. Uh, whether we're trying to do it through social service agencies now or whether we were trying to do it philanthropically now, it's very tough. My proposition is the, the only consistently effective way, and even then it's tough, is why, by people who are very close to the person in need. And right now we have shipped these responsibilities downtown in ways which undercut one of the great strengths of America's traditional society. 
The, the other thing that will happen, however, in revitalizing America's traditional society is that historically, as observers from Tocqueville on down have said over and over, America has been extraordinary in the degree to which it responds to problems by creating associations through, through private, uh, non-governmental means. When the government got deeply involved in social welfare, the associations continued, the philanthropy continued, but it was diverted to other kinds of uh, arenas in which the government was not so active. Well, I think that the best thing we can do is to get uh, that kind of energy back into the civil society traditionally defined. Assessing the risk of being killed in the United States by a foreign-born terrorist is a daunting task, but the numbers do reveal something powerful. You have more reason to fear being killed by a neighbor than a foreign terrorist. Alex Narasta, immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute, detailed some of the hard-nosed risks in October. So I went through all these databases and tried to comb out the number of uh, individual foreign-born terrorists, where they came from, their individual names, et cetera. And I have an appendix at the end of this report of uh, relevant dates, the names, what visa they entered on, how many people they killed, uh, et cetera. Now, when in doubt, I picked the most negative number possible. So if there were two sources that said X terrorist killed, you know, if it said it killed three people and another source said it killed two people, I chose the three people murderers to try to boost the danger. Uh, in terrorist attacks like the one in San Bernardino, where it was an American-born person uh, who uh, combined with his foreign-born spouse, terrorist, to do the attack, I blamed the immigrant themselves for every single casualty uh, to try to boost the numbers to make it more negative. Um, if there are several terrorists who are combined in one attack, such as 9-11, I split up the casual, the deaths amongst all of them equally. Um, you can make different arguments there, but just to try to get an idea. Um, so that's what I did to try to figure out, amongst a, a lot of other things, to try to figure out the danger. Now, before I begin and tell you what my conclusions are, I want to tell you some of the limitations of this type of work. Um, I didn't count terrorists traveling abroad to commit terrorism. I didn't count those aiding foreign terrorists. I didn't count those lying to the FBI about foreign terrorists or targeting Americans in other countries. I didn't count those who were extradited to the United States for planning terrorism against Americans abroad. Because my focus is on immigration, I focused on immigrants or foreigners planning attacks inside of the United States, which is what people are most worried about. I would wager, and we'll probably hear more about this, but when people are worried about terrorism on U.S. soil, they're not, they are worried about the guy who travels abroad to join a foreign militia. They are, however, a lot more worried about the danger that that person poses to Americans living here in the United States. And that's what I wanted to focus on uh, today. Now, another criticism of this or a limitation of this is that things could always change. I took a look from 1975 to 2015. Things going forward could be a lot worse uh, in terms of the danger, or they could be a lot better. Um, I can't read the future. I can't tell you. I wish I could. I'd be a billionaire. Uh, but Luckily, part of the benefit of not doing that is being able to be here with you today. So things could always change in the future. Another thing, another problem is when we took a look at this, 
So about 1.14 billion people have entered the United States on the visas I took a look at during this time period, 1.14 billion. 154 of them are foreign-born terrorists, and they killed a total of 3,024 Americans on U.S. soil in attacks during that time period. Because these numbers are relatively small compared to the number of people who have entered the United States, it might not tell you anything that meaningful. And if you need some more explanation on that, I, I recommend looking up statistics, uh, uh, delving some more into statistics. But when we have such a small number of people engaged in this type of activity, um, this could be a very small non-representative sample. It could be uh, blown up. It could change over time. Um, but I would also like to say, because the numbers are so low, it definitely made me feel more uh, secure as an American when it comes to foreign-born terrorism. I used to be quite a defense hawk. I don't think I've admitted this uh, from a Cato platform before. Uh, but I used to be quite a defense hawk, and uh, especially in the aftermath of 9-11. And reading work similar to this about other terrorism risks has changed my mind and inspired me to do this type of research. So during this time period, there have been 154 foreign-born terrorists in the United States. They've killed 3,024 Americans on US soil. Now, that looks like a lot of people, and it is a lot of people. 98.6% um, of those were on one day, September 11, 2001, accounts for 98.6% of all of those casualties. So that shows you how much of a tremendous, gargantuan outlier the 9-11 attacks really were. Uh, depending on what you count as a terrorist attack globally, it is somewhere between, 9-11 was somewhere between about um, four to 10 times as great as deadly as the next greatest terrorist attack in, in world history, depending on how you count them. So it's quite a deadly attack. Um, during that time period, though, 3,432 Americans were murdered on U.S. soil by all terrorists, including domestic terrorists, U.S.-born terrorists, such as uh, Oklahoma City bombing or some of these other shootings uh, in recent year, like uh, uh, Hassan uh, at the um, uh, Fort Hood shooting. During this time period, 88% of all the deaths uh, by terrorism on U.S. soil during this time period were committed by foreigners, of course, including 9-11. Um, excluding 9-11, uh, uh, about 9% of the remaining deaths were committed by foreigners, which is about proportional to their average size of the population during that time period. So that also tells you how much 9-11 changed things in terms of this uh, risk analysis. So this comes down to what I think is the... Um, most interesting part, which is what is your chance of dying in an attack by a foreign-born terrorist during these time period? And this is a per year chance of doing it. So for all foreign-born terrorists on US soil, it's one in 3.6 million a year. The deadliest, however, subcategory of, of uh, foreign-born people is tourists. Because of 9-11, that's one in 3.8 million a year uh, per this time period. Uh, refugees. Uh, during that time period, three Americans have been killed by refugees and terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Um, that is a ch annual chance of dying of one in 3.6 billion. Illegal immigrants, there have been 10 illegal immigrant terrorists. Together, they have all killed a total of one American in uh, terrorist attacks during that time period. That's a one in 10.9 billion annual uh, chance per year of dying in a terrorist attack committed by one of them.
This holiday season, visit the Cato Institute's online store for gift ideas, including new books, free ebooks, and Cato merchandise. Cato sponsors receive a 35% discount on all items, except for the wide range of Lands End apparel and accessories that can be personalized with a Cato logo. You'll find a link to all of Cato's merchandise and Cato's special Lands End site at cato.org store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year.